Hi, this is Kayla Ward. And this is Jessica Bartman. And this is... Gone Global! We did it. We found a title. We found the name of our podcast. At last. Gone... No, not Atlas. <laughs> yeah. That could work too, though. Gone Global. Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. Much, much like us. We've uh-huh. gone global. Yeah. So it works. That's cool. So, what have you learned this week? I I learned that we found a name for our podcast. It's gone, okay. it's gone global. Yay. Hooray. All right. Well, I've got a really good one. So okay. Yeah. Ask me. Hit me. Okay. So I had the great privilege of going to the Kasterman archives in a place called Tournai in Belgium. Now, Kasterman is the publisher of Tintin albums. Um, so it- Let me stop you there. Tintin albums. So these are the books of Tintin that are just like the single stories, right? Yeah, not yeah in, like a hardcover book. Not in the, the magazines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so this was the publisher, though. So I, I, it was a really amazing experience to get to go to these archives um, in the field, in the area of my PhD. Um, and in it, I found lots of letters from Hergé, who was the creator of Tintin, very, mm. very famous. Um, I found letters from him, which was cool in itself. But as I went through them, I found that part of his and his publisher's strategy to kind of like conquer America with Tintin stories, they had a plan to send Tintin books to the Kennedy kids in 1961, mm. which nice. is really, really cool. So I I haven't found the trace. So I got through quite a few letters up to like 1962 or something Hmm. and as far as i've found it managed to get to the french embassy and the ambassador was supposed to pass them on to the white house but i don't know if it ever got there or not the last thing i have is Hergé being like oh hey whatever happened about those books for the kennedy kids did they ever get there or anything and I, i haven't seen the reply So I'm kind of interested to find out if it actually happened, because that's really cool. Yeah. Surely there'd be a record of that somewhere. There would be in the White House archives, because there is an archive in the White House. Now, you should be telling me this, but of every meeting, every post, piece of post that they get, every package, especially from ambassadors and things, each president has their own archive in Washington. So, I don't know, we're going to get a little political here, but a big part of the problem of, you know, Trump throwing away his notes and redacting things is that ordinarily they would go directly to the archives. His notes would? Yeah, for like his meetings and things. They they go into the archives. And of course, they're not public or anything, but they're preserved. So a big problem for historians and archivists at the moment is that he's just not following the protocol Mm. well (laughs) with anything right but you know so so that's really interesting too so if they got there there would be some kind of record that's really interesting yeah super interesting. interesting yeah in your letters are these handwritten no they're typed oh typewriter typed hmm it's still cool though. Like, no, I for still, sure. I still like Satan. What What do you think Hergé's handwriting is like? Uh, I've seen a signature somewhere on a few things. Very scrolly. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, learned, I only really learned one thing this week, and we don't have to talk about it for a long time. And I'm not casting aspersions or making any judgments either way did you know patrick stewart is not gay yes very much so i had no idea i had no idea right okay and where did you get this from i don't know because i don't know for years very much not true i wonder i wonder if it's that he you know is so associated with ian mckellen Mm -hmm. um who is Notoriously gay. Notoriously gay? Uh, no. I, I, famous. Fa- famously, yeah. sure. Um, I, I mean, you know, gay people can have non-gay friends, right? 
What? <laughs> um, I think it's your turn to go first this week. Oh, we're just going to end it though, then. <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about. Yes, we very much do. But yes, I didn't know that, so. Yeah, um, so you learned something. There con- you go. Congratulations <laughs> to me, I guess. <laughs> All right, so today our topic is history, which is quite a broad topic. So today I'm going to talk about the history of the British Post Office, hmm. which is a fascinating history. And I also have a lot of family ties to this, which is kind of why I started thinking about this. But I'll get to those in a minute. Um, okay, so the Post Office first dates back to 1516, 503 years old. Huh. Do you, surely that was like the days of like the Pony Express. What? Oh, you've never heard of Pony Express? <laughs> What's the Pony oh, Express? I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Maybe save that for the next one because I've got a lot to get through here. It's 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 basically it's early days of U.S. mail. They did it all by horse, and so they called it well, the Pony it, Express. It wouldn't be these these days because it's 1516, so it's you know 100 years before they yeah. get that. Wait, what do you think? You're better than me? <laughs> Well, older for sure. <laughs> not well. Okay, I'm not older. You're much older than me. Now but about five hundred years. Yeah. yeah, my country is older than yours. So, so no, this was actually Henry VIII that made a master of the posts. Hmm. But of course, being the uh, hierarchical society, it was only the king and court could actually use this post service. It didn't open until the pu- um, it didn't open to the public until 1635, which is still. Pretty early for a post system. Um, in 1711, the Post Office Act paves the way for a unified service across England, Scotland, and Wales. So already by this mm. point, they, they're getting it around the British Isles. Um, the service became officially known as Royal Mail in 1784. And that, that name came from seeing mail coaches, apparently. Um and it also diversifies its fleet to include steamships to reach the empire in 1821 and then adds trains in 1830. And the first route, again, links to my beloved hometown, is between Liverpool and Manchester. So the first post that goes by train goes from Liverpool to Manchester. I guess that makes sense because it's they're not terribly far away. Yeah, and major cities that need to communicate with each other, it makes yeah. Perfect sense if you can do it faster in a train than in a hmm. you know a mail coach. And what year was this again? 18... This is 1830. 30. Okay. So then in 1853 we get to the introduction of post boxes because the system was getting overloaded and they they just couldn't cope with you know a single postmaster for each town collecting the mail, taking it to the mail coaches or the train or the boat. Like it was just too much. Hmm. So the, the post boxes is a system where you have a postman who can go and collect it. You know, everyone takes it to the same place. You collect it and then it go, it gets sorted. You know, how mailboxes work. Well, exactly. But that's how we understand it currently. Right. Back in 1853, that wasn't quite so obvious. Sure. Now, I'm very, very interested in post boxes. I've always had a weird fascination with finding them because I'll, I'll get to the the letters on them in a second but you can like find different letters on them and it means different things and it's but i will get to that so yeah so by that what you mean are like sort of engraved um initials yeah sort of yeah yeah yeah. but i'll explain about all that in just a second um so 1853 the post boxes are introduced to the british mainland they had first been in the channel islands so that's guernsey and jersey for example um but they were having major logistical problems because any post relied on tide times. Huh, okay. So because they couldn't get it to the mainland, they introduced the post boxes, which would mean that, you know, all the mail could be stored in the box until it was able to be sailed over to the mainland. Right. Um, so they introduced them there and they were quite successful. So they brought them to the mainland and, um, there was a lot of debate and problems over design them because they they were just boxes essentially and there was lots of different variations of them. Um, the design wasn't standardized until 1859 and introduced a, a unique uh, 
uniform design, but with different sizes for bigger cities that had more mail traffic, as it were. Um, But the city of Liverpool was far too busy for even the biggest boxes. The capacity was way more because at this point, Liverpool was kind of like the the port for the empire and the port for like all the ships going through around the empire going to America. For example, there was a crossing from Liverpool to New York. Yeah, this is like the the middle of the industrial revolution. And yeah, everything. yeah. So anything coming from the north of the country is pretty much coming from Liverpool. Yeah. So a huge hub. Um, so a, a Liverpool special, it was caught, literally called a Liverpool special design, was commissioned to, to fit a larger amount of boxes. And there are still three surviving, two are in museums, and one is in the Albert Dock, which is Liverpool's... It's kind of a renovated industrial revolution dock which now has beautiful museums and um, shops and things. It's a really nice area. And one of these still exists there, so that's from 1859. Where? In the Albert Dock. I know I've walked past it, but I I couldn't tell you. Like, I saw the picture on Wikipedia and I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I've seen that, but I couldn't tell you. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's on the... On the front bit, directly in front of the water, rather than in the actual dock. Okay. Towards like where now is the arena and things, I think, towards that bit. Where okay. you cross the, the, that old bridge. Yeah. I think it's around there, but I will have to check that. But that's yeah. kind of cool. You'll have to point that out. That not very many exist, and they only existed for the city of Liverpool. And there's three left. Mm, two rare museums. Do you know how many there were? I don't, actually. Mm. But I, I mean, if there weren't that many and they were only in Liverpool, yeah, I probably would say not very many. Yeah. But the the design of them, I should have got a picture of this actually. Is that they they're like a standard red box, but they have like a little gold and red hat on them, and it's huh. a different design. And it was also <laughs> stereotype of Liverpool here, but it was also a security issue. Because they were sending, like, important mail to the Empire, they needed to make sure that no one could get into it and steal it. Yeah. Um, But many boxes... So, the UK was the first to create these post boxes, and many boxes were exported to British territories, including New Zealand, Australia. There's even some in places like South Africa. Because they they Mm. made the boxes in, in... Sorry, not in Liverpool... Um, in the UK, and then exported them. Right. And even sold some to to countries that were already operating their own postal service. Mm. So the, the British Territories one was still UK post office. Right. But as so they shipped them boxes and things. But they, they exported to some as well to other countries already operating their own, which is kind of cool. Did we, did we see one in New Zealand, in Wellington? Maybe. You did say New Zealand, didn't you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There, according to Wikipedia, there are still some around in New Zealand. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm picturing one in yeah. the, um, on on the main Cuba Street. Yeah, I think you could be right. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to. I bet we have a picture. Of that yeah, because I've got tons of pictures of the boxes because I I like finding them. Um. So the construction of them, they are. Generally, in modern times, they're cast iron. Um, They're fitted with a five-lever lock on the inside, and each box has its own key with no skeleton keys. So post men and women have to carry huge bunches of keys for for a different key for every post box. It's a security thing. Sure, yeah. And another security thing is that they are anchored below ground, which I had no idea either. Oh. But then I kind of thought, I was like, despite all the storms and vandalism, frankly, of, <laughs> like I've never seen a post box that's been toppled over or anything. Right. yeah. So yeah, they're anchored below ground. And they also have a serrated handguard in the slot where you put the letter so you can't reach in and oh, grab wow. any letters. Yeah, I had no idea about any of this. Um, so the standard color is red for a post box. But they're 
did used to exist some green ones. They were an early design. Hmm. Um, and also they... Ha- once international mail got a bit more popular and they started doing it by plane, so this would be, I don't know exactly, but probably 1920s, 30s, when first 30s, like plane 40s, yeah. travel comes around, they had air mailboxes, which oh. were blue. Oh. Yeah. And for the 2012 Olympic Games, they did a commemorative act for every gold medal that the UK won. They'd paint a postbox gold in the athlete's hometown. We've There's seen a, that. It's in Edinburgh. That's right. Yeah. So it's a commemorative thing for the Olympic Games. Which That's is, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. cool. Um, so as to why I'm so obsessed with them, the we mentioned before that there's letters on post boxes. Uh-huh. Now these are the ciphers for the, um, the monarch at the time. So I have a picture here for you of all the ciphers that exist. So we've got one for Queen Victoria, whose reign was 1837 to 1901. So going back to 1837, if you remember, the first mainland ones, boxes weren't until 1859. So the beginning 1837 ones were the ones that were on the islands. Okay. So they started off with her. Um, So do those, the ones on the islands, do those have... Her cipher? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that one. Um, then we've got Edward the Seventh, 1901 to 1910, who's got a nice ornate ER. So so the, the cipher is always their name with R, Rex, or what's the what's the female one? What are you I think, I think, but it's, it's, it's basically king or queen in Latin. Rex? I don't know. <laughs> or Regia? Isn't it Regina? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so we've, then we've got Edward the Seventh. Then we've got George the Fifth, who just has GR and yeah, no five in, in his very, name, actually. In very... Uh, Blocky letters. Yeah. yeah that's The others are very time, ornate. Times New Roman. Yeah. He must have been no, no nonsense. Well, I mean... His reign was 1910 to 36. So if you think... It's World War One. That's World War One. <laughs> so he was like, no, no ornate things. Yeah. Maybe just just down to business, very... But, you know, it's it's in its own way, it's interesting. Then we've got Edward VIII. Now, this is a very interesting one because he is the king who abdicated in order to marry an American divorced woman, Wallace Simpson. I saw that in the king's speech. Yes, exactly. So his reign was only one year, 1936, which means those boxes are the rarest to find. I've definitely seen one of those. Do you think you'd steal those? Well, no, they're anchored into the ground. You couldn't do it, I'm telling you. I don't think you could. So you couldn't do it easily. Look, if, if post boxes are existing for all this time and you can still find Queen Victoria ones, which I have found... So the latest that could be is 1901, and yeah. they're still going. Yeah. I don't think you could steal them. I bet, I bet that would also be one of these odd ancient laws of like treachery against the monarch oh, or something, for because sure. it's royal property. For sure, you would. Be I mean, like, I'm not gonna try it. Right. You would be like, yeah, you would be like hung in the gallows and yep. drowned in the sea yep. if you tried it. Oh yeah, definitely. But you gotta think if you could if you could score the the guy who Edward the Eighth. That's the one <laughs> who was only the king for a year. Yep. And there's only one or two of those boxes. There, there's not just one or two. There is a few of them, but they're the rarest. Gotta be worth something. <laughs> anyway, not gonna steal them. I just think it's a very cool historical object. I'm gonna Ocean's 1936 these <laughs> these mailboxes. <laughs> Um, so then we go on to George the Sixth, who is nineteen thirty-six to nineteen fifty-two. He's got a, a nice ornate one again, G with a V I and uh-huh. then a, an R. And then our current queen Elizabeth II has again quite a blocky E two R. And all of these, apart from Queen Victoria, have a the royal crown mm. above them. 
um, which I just think is really cool. And so is I, it, I'm so sorry. Are they? Um, is it their crown specifically? Because hers looks familiar. Yeah, you know, I don't know, but that does look like her Cause they, crown. They are different too. Yeah, so I I would assume so, mm. but I I don't know. That's that's a that's a good question to try and figure out actually. Mm. Um, but one thing I found out was that they never replaced the boxes. So basically, when a monarch changes, new pillar boxes don't replace old ones; they just add to them. Hence, why you can still find them all. Because they never take them away. They should make new ones. Yeah. I see. It's So it seems like even when they get taken away, it's probably because maybe there's not as many people in a village or something, so it doesn't need mm. three post boxes or whatever. I think there would have to be a reason to take a post box away okay. rather than just replacing it right. with the, the one with the new monarch. Because it's not it's not a separate plate for the cipher. It's carved into the metal. Right. So you would have to replace the whole box to do that. Mm. Which is also very interesting. Um, and then going back to good Queen Liz, our current queen, she is Elizabeth II of England. But in Scotland, she's only Elizabeth I. Because going back to the Tudors... Right. Henry VIII's daughter, Elizabeth I, was only Queen of England because the the UK becomes the UK with Elizabeth's nephew, who is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. So he becomes James of England and Scotland. Okay. So when they started putting Elizabeth II post boxes in Scotland, there was outrage. People were blowing up the post boxes and everything. What? Because she's not Elizabeth II of Scotland. <laughs> what a wild thing to care about. Like, I mean, she wasn't though. Like, so, so, so. No, it's it's not. It's it's erasing all of that Scottish history that existed before it was part of the UK. Well, but then who is Elizabeth? Sorry, so who is Elizabeth the first then? Elizabeth the first is they never had a first because Elizabeth the first. <laughs> but anyway, the the solution is that they don't show the cipher on them. For the most huh. part, they just have the Scottish crown, which is different. Um, I have I have seen in Dundee actually a GR and an E8R. Possibly even a VR, but yeah, Elizabeth II. That was that was a big big deal. That's wild. Yeah, what a hill to die on. Scotland. What a hill, what a, what a hill <laughs> for have, a postbox to die You have to understand to though that Scotland has a very rich history, and it often gets ignored in the sure. broader context of sure. a UK history, and it it doesn't become part of the UK until quite late on. Hmm. So. I can understand it. I mean, I probably wouldn't go as far as blowing up the post boxes, but yeah, crazy, huh. crazy stuff. But yeah, so that so even just the the boxes is its own history in itself, and I'm fascinated by them. Yeah. So I have lots of pictures of lots of places I found them in, uh-huh. um, but unfortunately, the the photos on my iPhone it doesn't say where they are. I know we found some in Kendall. Uh, we can. Can, we can work that out. Yeah, because yeah. like we found a VR into the wall in uh-huh, Kendall, uh-huh. and that's another different one that didn't come till quite late on having them in the wall. They were supposed oh, to be right. yeah, yeah. for London to save space, but they actually work better in kind of rural yeah, er- areas sure. where they can build them into walls and stuff and save a bit of space. And also because there's not as much mail there, you could, if it's only a small village, yeah. then you'd only need a smaller box. Right. So there's lots of history about the design of them. Um, it would take me three hours, so I'm going to leave the boxes for now. But it's very, very interesting. Um, and part of why I chose this topic, like I said, is my family connection to the post office. 
So I enlisted the help of my wonderful Auntie Anne on this because she's very good on family history. Oh dear, Auntie yeah. Anne. Yeah, so Auntie Anne is my dad's sister um, and she, she told me a little bit about the family history. So just counting kind of direct relatives of mine, we have 156 years of service in the post office oh, in just cow. the Burtons. So um, I'm going to do my kind of more direct relatives first. So first of all is my dad, who drives lorries for Royal Mail, um, and also worked in Liverpool Airport screening packages for bombs and stuff, which mm. is kind of an exciting job, he says. <laughs> uh, for our American listeners, a lorry is like a, a semi-truck. Oh, yeah. Sorry. A semi-truck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so he drives those. Um, he's been in there for 25 years. Auntie Anne herself was 14 years. My nana, my dad and Auntie Anne's mum, was in there for 20. My granddad, her husband and my dad's dad, was there for seven years and then he went and got a different job and then he was 18. Um, his brother, my great uncle Charlie, was 10 years. Their sister, my great auntie, 28. And my great nanny, their mother, 34. So we're on 156 already. And I'm, I'm going to read just a little bit of Auntie Anne's text because there's, there's so much family history in it. It's really quite amazing, actually. And I sort of feel like post office should be paying me for this promotion. Yeah. yeah we'll try to get them <laughs> as a sponsor. Yeah. Um, okay. So talking, talking about all the direct... Relative. So then we've got a couple of like great aunties that aren't like blood related to me and stuff. So great auntie Mag, nanny's sister, was about 10. She was a cook. Her husband, Uncle Bob, a postman, but not sure how long. Auntie Anne's first husband, Tony, did 30 years. And his brother, Kevin, nine years. Uh, another brother, brother, Andy, was 15 years before he was held at gunpoint from Speak Post Office and had to drive a post van with a gun to his head. What? Wow. <laughs> um, and then Uncle Pete, Auntie Anne's husband, uh, he works for the British Telecom, which until 1981 was part of a wider postal service until they realised that, you know, phones are actually a thing, so they made a separate company of that. Right. But there's, like... I'm just going to scroll down and show yeah. you just how much there yeah, is. She, and it's, she wrote you a novel. Yeah, but that shows how much history there is there. Yeah, and that's, for sure, for sure. That's really, really cool. Um, so here's, here's another little bit about Great Nanny. Um, there were lots of strikes in post office over the year. The big one was in the early 70s. Great Nanny would have retired in 1976 as she was born in 1902. I think she started the post office during the war because in, well, in both world wars, actually, the men had kind of disappeared. So women right. took a lot of more stereotypically male jobs right. because they weren't left to do any of them. So, yeah, lots lots and lots of family history there. Um, and then to take us up to the current situation, the 2000s have been fairly turbulent for the post office in a changing world you know we have more parcels now we have internet packages we have more like courier companies um they've split into royal mail and then parcel force that takes care of all the parcels Mm. um and then in 2011 they were privatized it used to be a public owned company and now it's not and it's really quite a shame that Yeah. All of this history has just been sold off. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm not a business person. I don't know how it works, but just it seems like a shame to me to, to do all that. So that's where we are with the post office. Wow. I know one post guy. He wasn't that great. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my connection to the yeah. post office. Well, that was a long one. I'm sorry. There was just so no, much to please, say. Yeah. Um, I think mine will be a bit of a long one as well. That's um, history. I also have a family connection to mine. Okay. However, that person has since passed, mm-hmm. and I was not lucky enough to have this person write me a novel about the um, oh. about their experience because that would have made this a lot better. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm gonna I have a little bit of a preamble okay as to um, uh, where I came up with this idea and um, so uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get into it so the idea for this topic was planted in my head while I was listening to the Bets sphere episodes of astonishing legends okay um, you should definitely listen to that podcast if you are into <laughs> Um, just the weird things that happen in mm-hmm. the world. Cryptids. Fiesta, no pianos. The pool. <laughs> You're welcome to them. That's, Thanks. That's <laughs> that's free though, boys. Don't you worry about it. Um, it's a podcast about cryptids, uh, unsolved mysteries. Um, um, you know, Mothman, uh, Oak Island, that kind of stuff. Um, they're really, really great. They do really deep, deep dives into those mysteries. But the elevator pitch for this series, specifically the Bet Sphere, is basically that. Late one night in Florida, the Betts family uh, finds a metal sphere out on their farm. Oh, you had me listen to... To, to a bit of it, yeah. Yeah. The sphere can move around on its own, and, and it replicates certain musical notes that it hears. While trying to figure out what the sphere is, the government and various scientific figures come into the Betts family lives, and it messes the whole dang thing up. Okay. Now, one of these scientists is Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Mm-hmm. who was an important astronomer, uh, researcher, and debunker for the U.S. government. Um, and he worked on things like Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, which... I, I worked on a comic for a TV show of Project Blue Book. That's right. If you're a fan of the History Channel, they recently started a, a, a show on yeah. Dr. J. Allen Hynek and, and Project Blue yeah, Book. Yeah, yeah. I thought I'd heard the name. Yeah. Okay, cool. So... Dr. Hynek becomes a close friend of the family and reportedly told them, and this is according to the Betts family member that the Astonishing Legends podcast was in contact with, and and she said this herself, quote, the Roswell incident absolutely happened. Things were retrieved from there. Bodies were retrieved from there. He said that there's so much you don't know and so much that people feel like if they did know, it would destroy people's religious beliefs. It would panic people because then all of a sudden, it's not just us. We're not the superior being. We're just a speck. He said that stuff absolutely happened. Unquote. Oh, this is going to be juicy. So I wanted, already. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the UFO incident in Roswell, New Mexico. Yay! So my family connection here, uh, my uh, my grandmother uh, on my on my dad's side, Grandma Donna, was born in Roswell, mm-hmm. and she and my grandfather, I believe, were married on the the courthouse steps in Roswell. Cool. They had a, a cabin in the nearby ski town, uh, mm-hmm. Riadosa. But if you Roswell's big thing is this this alien um, yeah. uh, conspiracy and the TV show that the TV show which has been rebooted now yeah let's not it looks terrible well <laughs> <laughs> um, so I um, so I I've always had a, a sort of a deep connection to the yeah. to the town of Roswell although it's for me it's always been sort of passing through yeah because. You go through Roswell on the way to Riadosa. Okay. So we would go just, you know, weekend in Riadosa and mm-hmm. um, drive back to Amarillo. Mm-hmm. About six hours. Okay. Um, I love how that's a weekend away for you. That's like, that would be like a two week trip. And- nah, you leave, <laughs> you leave in the morning, get there, get there in the afternoon, early evening. You go to Walmart, you have dinner. Uh, At Walmart. That's right. Yeah. McDonald's. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to I'm gonna start with some basic facts on mm-hmm. Roswell. Um, it began with two small adobe buildings in 1869. Adobe building. That's right. So adobe is uh, – it's kind – it's a, a clay mud. It's made with various – ooh, there are some U.S. middle school teachers that are screaming at me right now. Adobe is like a – it's like a – it's almost like a plaster made out of okay. dirt and mud and is sticks it, and stuff. Is it spelled the same as like Adobe? Yes. Software. Yes. Okay. Okay. At least I think so. Mm. There, it's that sort of orange building that you see in a lot of like deserts. Okay. That, Cowboy movies. Okay. <laughs> Often you'll see like Native American people in said westerns mm. in that live in them it was the easiest 
way to build a house back then. Okay. Because the the storms were so rough, the you know the it the adobe works uh, in such a way that it can absorb heat. Okay. So it it'll keep you warm at night, yeah. but keep it cool yeah. in the day. Yeah. Okay. So these buildings were owned by Van C. Smith and Aaron Wilburn. Uh, these buildings became the settlement's general store, post office, and a makeshift hotel and resting area. Okay. And that was the beginning of the town of Roswell. Okay. The current population is around 50,000 people, according to the 2010 census. Okay. And according to the Census Bureau, Roswell has an area of 29.9 miles. 29.8 of that is land. Hmm. 0.04 miles, or 0.19%, is water. All right. (laughs) So... So My math is terrible, but how much does that leave for actual, like, people... (laughs) Not very much, right? Well, that's the the area total. Oh, okay, okay. So that's including the buildings okay, and stuff on okay. top of it. I see. But that's like a puddle of water. Yeah. All right, so here's the good stuff. Now, I got all of this from Wikipedia, and mm-hmm. I didn't go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So by no means am I an expert. Yep. I'm just, and I'm not claiming to know what happened, mm-hmm. but this is what Wikipedia says happened. Okay. Hit me. So on June 14th of 1947, and here we start, that date's a little wishy-washy. Mm. <laughs> the basic timeline is it uh, something happened around mid-June and early July okay. for the, uh, the various uh, findings and reports. Okay. A foreman named William Brazel, who was working on the Foster Ranch, found clusters of debris approximately 30 miles north of Roswell. Mm-hmm. Uh, the debris was... Uh, was a quote large area of bright wreckage made made up of rubber rubber strips, tin foil, a rather tough paper, and sticks. Unquote. He had apparently heard reports of flying discs and spoke to Sheriff Wilcox, who quote whispered kind of confidential like unquote that he may have found one. Okay. Wilcox calls out the Roswell Army Airfield, the RAAF, and two men, one major. Major Jess Marcel, and he's Jesse Marcel, I mm. forgot any, um, and, a, and a, quote, man in plain clothes, mm-hmm. unquote, uh, to go out and pick up the debris, and they decide it was basically a weather balloon. Mm-hmm. Um, after a bit of back and forth between mil- military agencies in Roswell and Fort Worth, Texas, the balloon is flown to Texas, and it's confirmed again that it's a weather balloon. Hold on, ju- just to get my geography right, so you said... Texas is about six hours from New Mexico, right? Right. Okay, so they flew it back. And by flight, it probably wouldn't be so much, right? I'm not sure whether they flew it or drove it. Okay. Well, but, well anyway, I just wanted to picture it in my mind well, how far so it was going. Roswell, Roswell is toward the, uh, the southeastern corner. Okay. So if you picture that, you know, near that, the, the, the arm... Of Texas, you know, right by the the Mexico border, and you go, you basically go sort of across. You skip the part where Amarillo is, and you go across to Fort Worth. Okay, okay. So that I, th- I think I can picture. So that would probably be six to eight, maybe ten hours. Okay, I'm also thinking that that's a lot of people. You've got to uh, men in black. Well. So here's the thing. Make forget. Here's the thing. Uh, the military, the Air Force in Fort Worth says, no, it's just a weather balloon. Uh-huh. The story dies. Uh-huh. That's it. For 30 years. Oh. Nothing doing. Interesting. Now, 30 years later, uh, in 1978, a nuclear physicist named Stanton Friedman interviewed Jesse Marcel, who, by the way, was the only person to have accompanied the debris between Roswell and Fort Worth. They'd had uh, another team of researchers interviewing hundreds of people who claimed to be witnesses or had some connection to the events in Roswell in 1947. Okay. Friedman and a team of other researchers obtained hundreds more documents by the Freedom of Information Act, as well as even more documents that were leaked by government insiders, and the conclusion became... An alien spacecraft had landed near Roswell, alien bodies had been recovered, and a government 
cover-up of the incident had taken taken place. Okay. I didn't know it was so so much later. Yeah. I figured it would be, yeah. you know, instant. 30 years later. Yeah, and, that's and even, super interesting. Even all this happened from 1978 to about 1990 okay. when people started uh, writing books and making TV shows mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and blowing everything up. Yeah. Um, so like I said, the, the nineties is when all of this stuff really becomes mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and several books came out with various theories and scenarios. Uh, two of the most famous are the Roswell incident by Charles Burlitz and William Moore. Yep. And then UFO crash at Roswell by Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt. Mm-hmm. So here's the synopsis of the Roswell incident, uh, or a little bit on it anyway. It's considered version one of the Roswell myth, stating an alien craft was flying over the New Mexico desert observing nuclear weapons activity, but crashed after being hit by lightning. The aliens died on board and the and the government covered it up. Mm-hmm. UFO crash at Roswell added details to it, added details to the crash, excuse me, including a, gou- uh, a gouge in the ground that extended four or five hundred feet. Okay. On the ranch. It also added more witness statements with extensive descriptions. And in a new account, Brazel, the foreman mm-hmm. who had originally found the debris, led the army to a second crash site, which had already been taken over by civilians. One witness account in this book was the first to say that alien corpses were being held at the Roswell Air Force Base. Okay. So that's basically where all that comes from. Okay. So, so these books are sort of dramatized fictionalized but based on all the files that come out between 78 and 90s ish right i don't i don't know if you would say they're fictionalized necessarily dramatized maybe yeah okay yeah i don't know i don't know if you would say fictionalized Mm -hmm. necessarily because Mm -hmm. i i i believe they are based on um the files the files and the interviews I believe uh, Stanton Freeman, the guy who first interviewed Jesse Marcel, Mm -hmm. he did a lot of the research for the Roswell incident. Okay. Um, So, yeah, all of it is sort of compiled together in these various books. And there are a ton more. Mm -hmm. One, which I can't remember the name of, was the account of a, a, a trucker who supposedly carried the bodies to Area 51. Okay. There are... Yeah tons of books yeah. about about it all to sort of close to sort of close it up the u.s general accounting office launched an inquiry and directed the air force to look at these events and conduct an internal investigation the air force's results came out in 1994 and 1997 first they concluded that the material that was found was probably debris from project mogul a military surveillance program that used microphones attached to balloons. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for Russian right. spies, right. weapons. Mm-hmm. And basically they attached microphones to balloons and sure, that'll work. That'll be went fun. around trying yeah. to find it. <laughs> Second, and this, uh, this is the report from 1997, uh, they concluded that reports of recovered alien bodies were probably a combination of innocently transformed memories of military accidents and memories of the recovery of special dummies used in programs like Operation High Dive, a program that tested high-altitude parachutes that ended up sending the dummies spinning at a rate that would kill a human, as well as general hoaxes and propaganda. Mm -hmm. They believe that the psychological effects of time compression and confusion about when events occurred explain the discrepancy with the years in question. Yeah. Um, the government also, uh, and I didn't write this down, but there is an account of Jesse Marcel, the previously mentioned, yep. um, yep. um, uh, army guy, major, he was a major. Um, he apparently had a, um, uh, a reputation for embellishment mm-hmm. okay. and, um, Quite a few of of his um, statements have been sort of looked at and scoffed at, yeah. you know, by the government. Yeah. And so, so his, I guess, 
a two-part question for you. One, do you believe it happened? And two, did your grandma ever say anything about it? I think something happened. Yeah. For sure. I, I agree. And I, I'm... I love sci-fi, so I'm very like I'm very inclined towards the alien theory. Yeah, and I think I think there are enough things that are out there now that we know about. You know, things like um, Area Fifty One mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. skin the stuff that the weird stuff that happens at Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. I think it's highly probable that something happened. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I say I say that something implying something alien, yeah. alieny yeah. happened. Okay. Um, there was a another episode of uh, Bizarre States that I listened to, not uh, well, a couple years ago now, actually, of a, a a very respected scientist and politician, whom I can't remember the name of, but said that aliens in human disguise have come to him and have said that they're observing humanity mm-hmm. and and you know like i said the the report in uh the roswell incident has the alien craft observing nuclear weapons activity yeah. roswell is only uh a few hundred miles away from the white sands in Gordo, is... new mexico where they tested the nuclear bombs oh yeah okay um, I'll have to take you some of it. Yeah, and I also cool. really want to go to Roswell. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Um, Especially after all of this. <laughs> but so the 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 idea that this this scientist put out there is that they're observing humanity and the way that we uh, use technology, and they don't feel that we're mature enough to uh, sort of join with the galactic community mm-hmm. because we're still sort of. Destroying each other, destroying each and other, the planet. And, and the planet, and yeah, and using this nuclear activity in ways that are destructive, yeah, against ourselves. Yep. I don't know. You know, obviously, there's skepticism and cynicism, mm-hmm. a lot of cynicism there, but um, it's just interesting. Yeah. All right. So let let's go on to your grandma then. What was she there at the time? So, and this has been. I was maybe this. The, when I talked to her about this, I probably would have been 10. Yeah. So we're talking 20 yeah. years ago. She she would have been very young, mm-hmm. maybe 10 herself. Okay. She does remember something happening. Okay. Uh, or did, I guess, did remember something happening. Yeah. And <laughs> she did try to talk about it. I did, uh, you know, be, obviously knowing what Roswell is. Yeah. I do recall asking her about it, but I do distinctly remember going, that's not true. I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know what would have possessed that from me. Yeah. I don't know if it was some kind of attempt at being a 10-year-old cool guy or or, or what. Why would I have said that? But you don't remember what it was that she said? I, I recall that she was young and she couldn't go see whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I feel like I remember her saying something to the effect of they, a lot of the adults had put the children in one place where they could be or whatever, you know, I don't know if it was like several families yeah. or, but they, several adults left children behind, I assume under the care of someone, someone. <laughs> you kind of hope, uh, so that they could go see it. Oh, okay. But again, that's, you know, yeah. a two decade old memory that, yep. you know, I'll probably never get an answer to. Yeah. But yeah, interesting. She she was there. Yes. We think. Yeah, that's what she says. Yeah, all right. And I oh, I wish I could pick her brain about it now. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. With a bit less uh attitude about it. Yeah. yeah. What a jerk. No. Oh. But, you know, you attend that. That what, happens. What a jerk. Yeah, but... Ugh. Ten-year-olds are... Jerks. <laughs> so, So right. that's... Oh, we gotta... That's it. That's the, that's that the episode. The, yeah, that was a long one. We yeah. have a lot to say this time. Uh, All right. But I, that's probably standard for the, the history ones, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot went into the... As, as light as our respective research was like i i feel like a lot went into yep. even those yeah. so there's probably these will probably be a little bit longer than the others yeah i think so 
So I think uh, history, by its nature, is, there's a lot to say about sure. it. I hope we don't get it again. Yeah. All right. So now it's time to spin the wheel. Crap. Oh, politics. Crap. Oh, we said we weren't going to skip it anymore. Yep. <laughs> Dang it. Oh, we've just done a history one. Can't we do a fun one? The, well, wheel, the wheel is spoken. The wheel spoken, but we can also click again and... And, and spin the wheel again. Yeah, come on. Wheel, I didn't want to do I, this. I, I swear this is the last time I'll skip it. But we- after a history one, it's... Wheel, I didn't want to do this. Please no. Our food! food. Right. See how That'll much more fun. fun that is? That'll be good. That'll be good. All right, so tune in next week when we'll be talking about food. This is going to come back to bite us. Yep. Some someday. Probably. It's gonna hurt hurt us. Um do you wanna tell the fine folks where you can find us? Luxembourg? Don't come a visit. <laughs> they come visit if no. they like. No, they can't. Um you can find me at least on Twitter and Instagram at Toto in That's T O T O I N T O W. I also do a comics podcast with my very good friends, the Comics Pals. You can find it everywhere podcasts are sold, except for Spotify. We're still working on that, which is a nightmare. Um, but you can also find the creator of our theme song, Marco Kunalata, uh, Mr. Marco Animoto, who wrote the theme that I am trying to find the name of, Traveling in Bliss. Yay, I'm Marco! Marco, thanks so much to Marco for traveling in bliss. Yeah, he's a good boy. All right, and you can find me on Twitter at Jan91, J I N 91. Okay, that's it. Oh no, aliens! <laughs> yeah, right. I'm being abducted! Uh huh. Hell!